Bonjour and welcome to episode three of the Good Life France podcast. I'm Janine Marsh and I live in the middle of nowhere surrounded by glorious fields full of cows, vegetables and cereal in the Seven Valleys, Pas de Calais, Northern France, though I was born in London. I'm an author and editor of the Good Life France magazine and website, but my most important job, according to my 50 animals, is caterer and cleaner of the pens. Through this podcast, I'll be sharing everything France with you alongside my podcast partner, Olivier Geoffrey. The Good Life Francis podcast. Everything you want to know about France and more with Janine Marsh and Olivier Geoffrey. Hello, bonjour. So I am your opposite, Janine, in a way. I am an ex-Parisian and I now live in a town of 60,000 inhabitants in the UK, west of London. And I am surrounded by, um, well, buildings, although the countryside is not far away at all. I'm about uh, six miles away as well from what used to be the Queen's Castle of Windsor. And I don't write, really, like you do. Uh, I do audio stuff, and I have only one animal at home, which is a cat called Sparkle, according to my daughter. So I would say that we actually complete each other, if that makes sense, and uh, if it's English enough to understand what I mean, of course. Now, the question we are all waiting for, Janine, what have you been up to since the previous episode, please? Well, I travel a lot. I go around exploring all corners of France to write about on my website and in the magazine. And I've just come back from the lovely Loire Valley. It's my dream to visit as many chateaux as I can in the Loire. And I think I'm up to about 25 now, but I've got a long way to go because there are more than 300 in the Loire Valley. But still, that's good. Yeah, I'm getting there. Uh, on this trip, I ticked off Loche and Chinon and Villandry, Azelorido and Ousse, which is known as the real Sleeping Beauty Castle. It's absolutely beautiful. It's got pointy towers and turrets. It's reaching up to the sky. It's got gorgeous gardens that were originally designed by Louis XIV's favourite gardener, André Le Notre. And it's proper fairy tale pretty. But the reason it's known as the Sleeping Beauty Castle is because apparently the original writer of the Sleeping Beauty story, a Frenchman called Charles Perrault, not Walt Disney like everyone thinks, was inspired by the castle of Ousay. Anyway, I'm back now in my own little castle, but it's not a castle. It's an old farmhouse, but it's my castle and I'm happy with it. How was your week? Um, well, my week was uh, quite British, actually, funny enough. I had a, a few of those uh, English breakfasts that you do so well on this side uh, of the channel. <laughs> Poached eggs on toast with uh, avocado plus uh, baked beans and uh, Cumberland sausages. And the tea, of course, my favorite one is uh, the Assam tea. Uh, it's a bit stronger, but I love it. Uh, also, as a starter, one day I had some very nice scotch eggs, as you do. And another day I had a great Sauvignon from New Zealand and the bottle had a screw cap, something that is definitely not French at all. Oh, no. <laughs> 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 and also I watched uh, Graham Norton on TV and I loved it. But as we say in French, um, chasse le naturel, il revient au galop, which seems to be the equivalent of uh, what's bred in the bone comes out in the flesh. Because we've been also thinking about launching, at last, the raclette season at home. Not done yet, but I'm pretty sure it will happen very soon, as we have some friends coming over from France in a few weeks. Voilà, so now it's time to meet this episode's guest. And now, the main event. The Good Life Francis podcast interview. Okay, so Janine, who do we have joining us today? Today's guest is Ian Moore. He's a British comedian, author, columnist, corporate speaker, blogger, podcaster, and chutney maker. Yep, you did hear that right. He's a chutney maker. 
He lives in the lovely Loire Valley with his French wife, Natalie, and their three children. He also has two dogs, Gigi and Kipper, who's known for his slobbering tendencies. He has feral cats, a flock of egg-free hens, and three mad goats. And when he's not writing best-selling books on newspaper columns, or headlining at the world-famous comedy store in London, or making people fall about laughing at comedy festivals around the world, or popping up on telly to talk about his life of France, he makes chutney and jams, which he serves at breakfast at the Gite he also runs, which the Times says is one of the 30 best B&Bs in France. Welcome, Ian. We're really thrilled to have you on the show today. When I was writing questions to ask you, the list got so long that I had to cut it back because I, th- I thought we might be on here for a really, really long time. We'll have to call it the very long Good Life France podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you hear an introduction like that, my wife's been telling me for ages that I need to cut back on stuff that I do. And when somebody introduces you and, and literally lists everything you do, you realise I really do far too much. Uh, and so I will be cutting back. But not yet. Not yet, not today, from tomorrow. <laughs> Thank you, because <laughs> you're also um, an author and uh, yep. your first book was a memoir called A la mode, My So-Called Tranquil Life in France. I know what that feels like, yep. which is uh, all about how you came to live in France and brought your mod style with you. And for anyone listening who is thinking, well, what's a mod? It's a trend that became popular in 1960s Britain. I don't think anywhere else, I'm not sure. And mods like to dress stylishly and ride scooters. And I have to say, I really love to think of you in your slick mod suit and trying to keep your, you know, shiny shoes clean in the chicken pen. So are you still a mod? And what- I am. I am. It, it's um, the thing is, you, you're right in what you say. It was, it was um, more of a kind of fashion thing in the 60s for, for the British working class youth um, is, is how it would have been best remembered. I mean, its its roots are in jazz clubs and Sartre and all of that, which nobody needs to know because it's really quite <laughs> dull. Um, but as you get older, you ca- you realise that it's harder and harder to remain um, part of a youth cult. Uh, so I've kind of dropped the youth side of things, uh, and it's just it's basically it's it's an attitude. I still dress very smartly at all times um, because that's just who I am. It makes me feel better about myself. And it's just it's just a kind of sensibility. It's um, it's it's kind of a, a perfectionist look at things. Um, it, you know, you put in the maximum effort for what you do, and it's also about you controlling your own existence, which is where the Sartre stuff comes into. But in the end, basically, it's just it's nice suits and nice shoes. Sounds pretty good to me. I, I think I should be a mod as well. I'd like to be in control of things. <laughs> <laughs> it's not for everyone because you can really annoy yourself by, by knowing that, that this ineffectual thing, this, this, this uh, ephemera that's in front of you that you have absolutely no need to control, but you look at it and go, I have to control you now. And it's just, you know, it, it becomes a bit of a headache after a while. For instance, as you say, wandering around the goat pen in a nice suit is a stupid thing to do, but rules are rules. Do you know what, though? I, I I think it sounds really exciting. And I think for anyone passing your house, seeing you in your suit, <laughs> looking quite <laughs> incongruous and out of character, is, is going to be a bit of a thrill for them. So, you know, that leads me to what exactly is a mod doing in France? It's <laughs> a very good question. Um, the, it all stemmed from the fact that my wife is half French and her family were based around where we live. 
Uh, and so we've been coming here for years on holiday and and had, you know, I first came here with my then girlfriend, now my wife, in 1990. And one of the first things I said when we when we stayed here in this, this beautiful area was I just want to retire here and write light, undemanding comic novels, which is how it has eventually worked out, even though we've been here for 17 years. The, the plan was to retire here, but we just reached that point where we thought, just let's have a go at it and see if we can make it work. And that was 17 years ago. And it was the right decision, I guess. Absolutely. I know it's, you know, we've all gone through quite a change in the last few years with Brexit, COVID and things like that. So it hasn't always been easy for all of us. But I'm delighted to say that your books are just brilliant and I really really enjoy reading them and I'm going to get round to talking to them in a minute but first I want to ask you I'm an animal lover I have um, I don't even know how many chickens I've got anymore I've I've given (laughs) up counting Um, but I know you have a lot of animals as well how many animals do you actually have I'm I'm trying to where are we (laughs) mid-afternoon things may have changed since I last counted but you said at the top we've got two dogs Uh, what have we got Two cats, uh, three hens at the moment, three goats, um, and a horse as well. So wow. I don't know how much that is. I know because I, I, I need to work that out. It's very difficult because we, if we accidentally land on thirteen, my wife gets all jittery and says, "No, that's that's bad luck." So we have to go and get another one. Um, <laughs> so I, I really need to, <laughs> I need to count up. So we got is that four, four cats and dogs is four, seven is the hens, ten with the goats. We're on eleven. Do you know what, though? I think goats count for more because they're really, really hard work. I've looked after my neighbour's goats. You know, they climb all over you. They attack you. They creep up behind you. They're, I mean, God, they're awful. And I know, know you once said that your wife collects animals like there's a biblical flood on the horizon. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. yeah. and, and the thing is, she's developed a reputation for it as well, because two of our goats we got from uh, the zoo, the Zoo de Beauval, which is very close to us. Um, my eldest son did well at school one year and then he gets to the end of the year and you say, well, you know, you've, you've earned a reward. What would you like? And most sensible teenagers would say, I don't know, PlayStation, trainers, whatever. He said goats. So we got two goats from the zoo. And then I was away working, uh, gigging in the UK. And I came back uh, very tired after traveling and noticed there was a third goat and nobody was going to tell me. I just, it was just, you know, you just have to accept it. And what had happened, and genuinely true, what had happened was my wife had driven into town and she'd been flagged down by, um, by this bloke, just this bloke standing on the side of the road. Um, and he's, and he recognized her and he said, do you want to go <laughs> to my wife? And she, she said, no, we've already got two. And my husband doesn't really get on with goats. And he said, oh, all right then. Well, I'll just eat this one. Uh, to to which my wife replied, right, put him in the boot and I'll try and hide him. <laughs> That's how we ended up with the third goat. Oh, you know, no. it's, it's a bizarre old life in rural I can, I can quite understand your wife putting the goat in the boot, but I, I kind of like the idea of you coming home from a gig, tired, bleary-eyed, probably had problems on the trains in a night suit, yeah. looking in the in the garden and thinking, I'm sure we only had two goats yeah. last time. <laughs> it's it's just the, the way that nobody tells you. Just that, you know, and they try and back up again. No, 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 you must have miscounted before you left. You know, as if as if you're so tired, you're going to accept that kind of nonsense. <laughs> Do you know, I think it's a woman thing because my other half says to me quite often, you know, we've got eight cats now. And he says, no more cats. I don't want any more cats. We're overrun by cats. And then a cat will turn up at the back door and look at me pitifully and I'll I'll let it in. And then he'll look at it and he'll go, is that cat 
change colour. Is that a different cat? I was like, no, no, this cat's been here for months. So, I know it's terrible, isn't it, really? It's, you... it's just something you've got to put up with. That's what I've found. You know, French law legally has it that I'm the head of this household. It's just an absolute nonsense. Um, <laughs> you know, I have absolutely no input at all. I'm merely, merely a constitutional monarch. I've never heard of that French law that a man is head of the household. I'm going to look into that after this. Yes, it is. um, It's true. Laughable, isn't it? I think we should definitely (laughs) cut that bit out of the podcast in case my husband hears it. (laughs) Gets ideas above his station. Not going to happen. (laughs) You talking about goats, and I know I have also looked after goats, and I don't have any for that reason, because I experienced them in the first place before I agreed Mm. to, you know, own a goat. I hear that you, you have a penchant. French word thrown in there. You have a yeah. penchant for having staring contests with goats. What the heck is that all about? Well, it's kind of inevitable because they have these really weird eyes. Um, you know, their 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 pupils or whatever it is are the wrong way. They're they're horizontal and they should be vertical. And because they are, you just sort of get drawn into it. And I read a book. There's a book called Men Who Stare at Goats by John Ronson, and it was it was a genuine attempt by the CIA. To, to use mind control in the battlefield. And they tried it out on goats. It never worked. They never got it to work. But I thought, you know, if the CIA are going to have a go, I might try and have a go. And it's just, it just ends in, they just stare at me and chew and then just wander off. Isn't that for real? Men in suits, men in black, staring into the eyes of goats. Yeah, it's absolutely wow. true. It was, And it was made into a film. They made it into a film. Who's in it? Uh, Ewan, Ewan McGregor's in it. Oh, yeah, he's uh, great. Men Who Stare at Goats by John Ronson. It's a fascinating, insane book. Do you know what? My neighbour's got goats. He's got pygmy goats. So I might have to kneel down to stare into right. their eyes. Now, you see, the thing but, is, uh... I'm, I'm going to stop you there, you know, because <laughs> um, I, we have to get rid of this nonsense that pygmy goats exist, okay? Because this is the kind of lie that my <laughs> wife sold our goats to me on, saying they're pygmy goats. Pygmy goats don't exist. There are baby goat, goats and there are adult goats. And pygmy goats is this kind of sales pitch they give you. Like, you know, the, the, the mini pigs. Oh, yes. The mini pigs. They grow into massive great pigs. David Attenborough needs to do a documentary on this to try and quell this nonsense. Oh, I know you're right about pygmy pigs because uh, I stayed in a, a gîte in the Loire Valley, as, as it happens. And um, I, I stayed there because on, on the advertising stuff, it said we keep pygmy pigs. So I thought, oh, well, I'd love to see a pygmy pig. And then when I got there, they actually had this enormous great big pig that <laughs> basically ruined their house because it just got bigger and bigger. But they'd fallen completely in love with it by then. Mm. And they had to build it its own house on the back of their house because it would just run rampage and it ate everything and you know it left its mess everywhere little messages or big messages actually so yes and they said oh but when we bought it it was so cute like a little tiny baby and it was a pygmy pig and uh now it's about 250 pound monster pygmy goats it's a lie (laughs) it is a lie and another lie chickens lay eggs you know well do do yours lay well i've got some really old ones and um I don't lay very often. I think some of them don't actually lay anything at all, but mm. no. Mine have stopped. I bought two more about three weeks ago, uh, and they haven't laid a thing yet. And I've, I don't know what it is. I don't know whether... I mean, the French hens, they could be on strike. I've no idea. Um, but then <laughs> they're certainly not producing, that's for sure. So I'm having, to, I'm having to feed my hens, but still out, go out and buy eggs. Which is not it's not the idea at all. No, it's not. You can't. You sound quite resigned to it as well, Ian. Uh, oh, what can you do? You know, I mean, see, the thing is, although I love 
love living in rural France. Um, I, I, I realise, I, you know, if I was a proper native of rural France, I simply wouldn't have any truck with hens that don't lay eggs and they would be deposited in a pot and used, used in another fashion. But I can't do that. I just can't. So I'm resigned to now having these hens until, you know, until they decide to produce or, or whenever, you know. It's like, or until they pop off. I'm powerless. Exactly. You are powerless. Chickens rule the roost. Do you not know this, Ian? Well, I really love hens. <laughs> and I, I really love the peace, the tranquility that they bring. I, I really adore them. Uh, and I get very attached to them. And one of our first hens was, this was a few years ago, and she wasn't very well. And again, I know I know how the locals would deal with this situation, and and probably quite rightly so. But I I took my hen uh, Victoria, her name was. I took her to the vet. No. And <laughs> which, so I'm sitting in the vet in rural France, and I was wearing a suit as well because I had to fly to the UK that afternoon. <laughs> I you know I, it was not a way to ingratiate myself with the locals who just just staring at me like I was Doctor Who or something like that. It, I, it was very peculiar. And I, you know, I kind of uh, didn't overstep the mark with that, but it was it was pretty close. The vet help you? Um, yeah, because the vets like money. That's that's what I find. <laughs> they they are addicted to the stuff. And and she gave me uh, the vet gave me an injection that I was to put into the the hen's um, gullet, so I had to bring their hen home and and basically do the job myself. It didn't help. <laughs> it didn't it didn't actually do any good for the poor Victoria. Oh, no, poor Victoria, and you're still not getting any eggs either, even no. after you've cared for them so well. Yep, yep. I'm grateful, aren't they? Yeah. I will say um, I do sometimes have a, a good result when I play Lady Gaga for my chickens. Oh, really? Yeah, they I, like music. I, I don't think I'm prepared to go that far. <laughs> <laughs> I think because the hens share the paddock with the goats, and the horse, maybe it's privacy thereafter. I'm not too, I'm not too, I'm going to have to work it out. I'm going to have to. <laughs> Stop looking at me. I'm trying to lay an egg. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Leave me alone. I've got to tell you, I don't think it makes any difference because once I was I was sitting in the garden with Mark, my husband, and we were just sitting there having a glass of wine in that sitting at the table, a couple of chairs, nice table. And um, Barbie, one of our chickens, just jumped up onto the table and laid an egg right in front of us. So there <laughs> you go. See, that's just showing off. I, I filmed it as well, but most people are not interested. So <laughs> I thought it was fascinating. Yeah. Wow. Rosé and an egg. Fantastic. <laughs> but that's, you know, that's what animals are all about. Is they give you pleasure in so many ways you didn't even know existed. Absolutely right. Yeah. And Kipper, my, my, he's, he's always, he's always, my wife says that he's my dog basically because he's very, he's quite naughty. Um, so that's just a it's just a secondary way of blaming me for whatever tumult he creates. But he he just he gives me an immense amount of pleasure. I just adore him. But he he eats hens, so there's <gasps> no <laughs> they have to be separated uh, and guarded. Uh, Ian, I, th I think there's a bit of a theme here. He eats hens, and they're not laying eggs. You know? Yes, there could yeah. be a connection. There could yeah. be. Kipper, yeah. behave yourself. <laughs> <laughs> now, Ian, you're an author as well as an animal lover. And I mm. recently read your comedy thriller book, Death and Croissants, and it, it was really funny and really fabulous. And I know you have a new book out now. I think it's out now, Death and Fromage. Yep. Yeah, the hardback came out in uh, in July. Congratulations. In July. I haven't you. read it yet, but I have pretty much been travelling back to back since July. So it's on my reading list. But right. I think you also have another book coming out for Christmas. 
Yep, the the um, hardback version of a short story that I wrote, which is called Death and Papa Noel, which is a handy stocking filler sized little hardback, a um, bit like the size of those old Ladybird books you used to get as a kid. <laughs> um, so that that comes out next week. Fantastic! Um, Congratulations. Thank you, thank you, and and you know it's all going, it's all going really well. The third one in that series comes out next June. The third full size one comes out in June, and I'm writing the fourth one now. Wow. So do you do you have a title time. that you can tell us? Does it have death in the title? Again? Yes, <laughs> yes, of course, <laughs> naturally. Um, the third one will be called Death at the Chateau and the fourth one will be called Death in Le Jardin. Ooh, very nice. So, Where do you get your inspiration from? Because that's a lot of books. Well, um, initially, because the main character is um, a guy called Richard, uh, Richard Ainsworth, who, who runs a and b uh, in the Loire Valley. Now, part of my kind of Brexit safety net uh, tactics was I opened a and b here as well. It's not open that much because, I, because I'm away working quite a lot and it is mine rather than my wife's who's a teacher. Um, and I, I, when I first opened up the B&B, I found it so uh, phenomenally dull that I um, started planning how to uh, kill off my guests. And uh, that's... <laughs> That's how the inspiration behind Death and Croissant started. Oh my word! Yes, um, and, and and you know, and it's it's, it's much more than that it, it, because the first one was quite, it was very successful. Um, it's uh, it, this basically the B and B is just a base for Richard and his investigating partner, um, the very French Valerie Dorsey. I don't really kill off my guests for inspiration <laughs> <laughs> can you imagine that just how bad my trip advisor would reviews would be <laughs> yes one star because he kills his guests off <laughs> yes nice breakfast but he killed his guests <laughs> so is richard based on you are you richard and is natalie well, I, valerie you see the thing is no that, and this is the issue <laughs> this, is, this is caused this has caused something of a problem uh, at home in that Richard, I guess, is based on me. Um, we're not not one hundred percent, but there are elements. Uh, whereas Valerie is uh, not based on Natalie at all, because Richard is is going through a separation from his wife, and, <laughs> and Quite Valerie, right, not, not based on yeah, Valerie at all. Yeah. No, and Valerie is a guest. Who stays? And basically, my wife read it and, and was quite vociferous. You know, this is this is just you in a male fantasy. What, what do you think? <laughs> write something proper. Um, but it, that that it wasn't at all. It's just that Richard. It was an, it was easy. Um, it was easy to base the very English character of Richard on me, and and the very French character of Valerie because the humor in the book comes from the very stereotypical English versus the very stereotypical French there's the mutual love there's a mutual respect but there's also a kind of bafflement in in each other's reactions which provides a lot of the comedy but Valerie is basically a composite of every French woman I've ever met who over 40 who um who just terrifies me. Every French woman <laughs> over 40 terrifies me. Well, every French woman terrifies me. Because they're so right. They're so certain of their opinions and of their values. And that's how I wanted Valerie to be, just so sure of herself. I'll give you an example. The, the, the example I give is, is uh, I was once in our, in our little town here um, with my middle son. He was very young at the time, Morris, and I was pushing him along in the buggy. And suddenly three women surrounded us and, and said to me, you must put a coat on her because she's clearly cold. 
And and I, <laughs> I replied to these women, I said, oh, yeah, uh, maybe, but that's actually a boy. That's my son. And they just peered at Morris and then looked at me and went, no, 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 it's definitely a girl. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that, it's that level of certainty that I wanted to, to bring across, but not based on anybody I know. I have to make that clear. And did you give in to the women saying that Maurice was a girl? Oh, yeah, anything for a quiet life. You know, well, you, then you, you are you, You'll part, end up getting a, getting a goat foisted on you or something. You're part like Richard then, aren't you? I you're am part, part Richard. Richard. From the <laughs> There's an element of me that always looks for a quieter life. You clearly find um, the strange things of life, confident women, uh, chickens that don't lay eggs. Uh, you clearly find all these strange aspects of French life. And I'm kind of scared to ask you... Um, because I read your blogs and I follow you on Twitter and I've read your book, so I know this could be a long answer, but what do you find most strange about life in France? What do I find strange? I don't know, but I, I don't think it's anything specific about France. I think as a comedian and as a writer, you just go through the world and you have a sort of sixth sense for what is peculiar and, and remember that. kind. Of, I mean, with France, for example... The very, very different way of, say, for instance, looking at DIY in, <laughs> in, in France. It's, it's, you know, like you go Bricomarche and, and shops like the DIY shops in France aren't open on a Sunday. Whereas in, in the UK, that's when everybody goes to a DIY shop. You know, there's, there's that kind of completely different. This is the weekend. Why would you want to be doing anything like that? Which is, yeah. you know, to my mind is, is absolutely right. Also little quirks like, you know, a local hotel restaurant will shut for two weeks in August because the owners want a holiday. Yes. But, but this is all well and good. <laughs> but um, that why are you why are you in the hospitality trade? Why are you doing that? Um, and I I just I I love things like that. I love the idea that France is is actually more rigid than than it likes to think of itself at times. I think because France, as we know it, was born out of revolution. Yeah. There's this idea that French, the French always think that we are, you know, any we'll just disobey any rules we don't like. This is, we we just won't do it. When actually they're a very very rigid law abiding, rule based society. And 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 when you when you recognise that, it's there's such a conflict there in their own psyche. I love watching things like that. I, I think you're so right. I mean, it's like if you get banned for driving because you, you're drunk or you're bad driving, then you can you can then go and buy a little electric car without a license. So yes. in yes. one way they're sort of law abiding <laughs> and in another way they're kind of anarchic yeah, by doing this. Absolutely. I think there was an incident in one of the books where I where I said that I think I had to get a a carte grise for, for the car that I'd brought over from the UK and we were being treated dreadfully by the local um, prefecture yeah. and uh, and we had French friends around and they said that I should go on my own because my French wasn't good enough at the time to deal with it and so therefore that would confuse um, <laughs> it would confuse them into actually having to do what they wanted us to do um, rather than actually go there and be um, fluent and so therefore they could abuse you and knew how to do it it's, it's lovely little quirks like that you know my top tip is always go at half past 11 because they want to have the lunch at 12 o'clock and they'll do anything to get you out the door for that. So. Absolutely right. <laughs> so I guess that, that made you a bit grumpy and you do actually have a bit of a reputation for being grumpy. And that's not just me saying that. You yourself say it. And in fact, your second book was called C'est Magnifique. 
Adventures of an English Grump in Rural France. So do you yeah. think living in France has made you more or less grumpy? No, I think I'm less grumpy in France. The longer <laughs> I stay here, the, the, the my grump levels go down. It's, I think that what happened, I was always pretty grumpy before we came here and I had that kind of reputation on stage um, and off stage. <laughs> well, just, just that reputation. Um, but when I'm here, I feel less grumpy. I, I just because I love it. I love my life here, and I love being here so much. But for the first, up until the pandemic, for the first fifteen years, I was living here, but still working away in the UK almost every week. So, and the the travel was just just became so tiring that my mood levels would would sink, and it would take a couple of days for happiness to come back into my life while I was here, and then I'd be off again. So I'm 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 less grumpy now now that I'm here more often, and I've made a conscious effort to try and be less grumpy as well, because I've got um I've got rheumatoid arthritis, which oh. makes travel very difficult anyway. But my wife, uh, and she's probably right in this, is convinced that my general attitude to to existence is what um, has given me that that it's not just my body physically attacking myself, but because of the way I've looked at life for so long. Maybe I have kind of mentally invited that, if you see what I mean. Yes. Um, so to change, to try and change my outlook was, you know, it was a deliberate attempt to change my outlook, which is why I started writing the Death and Cross on Death and Fromage books, because they genuinely cheered me up to write something like that, rather than concentrate on my life, but, but try and build a little community that was, uh, even, though, even though there's multiple murders, even <laughs> that, that it's a happier community. And it works, you know, it worked for me. I love that, that, you know, you're less grumpy in France. You, it's given you a chance to look at things differently in a different way of life. And, that, um, you know, dreaming about killing your guests has given you... A, a, yeah, that a, cheered a, me a up knowing. Yeah, absolutely. That's brilliant. <laughs> and, and clearly you really love your life in France, but what do you love most about it? Is it chutney making, jam making, staring into goat's <laughs> eyes? <laughs> It's difficult to pin down because I, uh, there's, there's lots of things that just make up France for me. One, it's home when I spend so much tr time travelling. Um, uh, there's a pace of life in France which I find much easier to live at. Um, there's the priority in France that family comes first, which I, which I adore. Certainly that's the case around here. Whether that's the case in the bigger cities, I don't know. Um, but also... Uh, I look at my family and we came to France so that we could have a bigger family. There's no way we could have afforded what we have in the UK. So I look at the fact that I've got three sons and think, well, if I wasn't here, I wouldn't have three sons. That fills me with a lot of pride that we've done this and that we, we have that pretty close-knit family. In that sense, we're, I'd, I think we're, we're, we're quite French, if you see what I mean. Um, I yes. mean, two of my boys were born here anyway, so... They're sort of French. They're, everybody's got dual nationality, but they watch far too much English football. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, I love that answer. That it, because you're right, you know, France is all about family. The fact that shops don't open all day on Sunday, including yeah. DIY shops, um, yeah. because people do value the time to sit down at with the Trevor at the table and to go visit the rest of the family. So, yeah. 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 I, you know, I love, and I, I, love, I, I love that kind of feeling. There was our neighbour who... Who is in the? She's in the Maison de Tretz. She's 90, 94 years old. Uh, but her family did a surprise party for her uh, last weekend, and they invited us, which is such a lovely thing, you know, such Aww. an intimate thing, 
to be invited to somebody else's family like that. You know, it's, it's, I'm not saying those kind of things don't happen in the UK. Just I don't think we'd be part of it, um, whereas we are here. Yeah, uh, yeah, I know what you mean. Um, I mean, I, I used to live in London, and yes, we had family, and yes, we had parties. But like you, I get invited to neighbours' parties here, and I don't think I would have done in London. Well, I yeah. know I wouldn't have in, in London. So, yeah. Ian, thank you so much for joining us on the Good Life France podcast. I, um, I'm not you. sure I'm ever going to be able to pass a goat again without staring into its eyes. In fact, after <laughs> this, I'm going to go and find a goat just so I can stare into so, its eyes. Yeah, they're supposed to stare into it so long that you overpower its mind, and in the end, they just they just keel over sideways. <laughs> That's the whole CIA technique. <laughs> There's a, a goat farm up the road, and they have a male goat. They're nearly all females, but they have one male goat called Lamoureuse, right. the lover. I'm gonna, <laughs> that's the that's, goat I'm going to stare that's, at. That's the nickname you want as you get older. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone listening, you can find details of all of Ian's book on his website. It's called ianmore.info, and that's I-A-N-M for mother, double O, R for Robert, E, dot info. His books are also available on Amazon and all good bookshops. And you'll also find details of where he's appearing next for his comedy shows, his blog and his gorgeous Jeep La Paul's in the Loire Valley. It's under the section Chutney and Jams, of course. And I promise you, he's not going to uh, kill you when you go and stay with him. Okay. I don't I don't make that promise. You can make that <laughs> promise on my behalf. <laughs> uh, you can hold me to it, everyone. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, Judy. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Ayan. Now it's time for the Q&A section, which we do every week. So if you got a question about France, get in touch now. We'll do our best to answer it. Got a question about France? Well, ask the experts. We reply to you in each episode. And we do it for free. So what's today's question, Janine? Well, it's an interesting one. And a big thank you to Annette Long of New Zealand for asking about Grigri, which is a French word for superstition. Annette says she read somewhere that French people think it's good luck to tread in dog poo. Yep, it's a very weird question, all right. But Olivier, is it true or false? Do you think, as a Frenchman, that it's good luck to tread in dog poo? You know what? Uh, that is a very well-known fact indeed, and a strange <laughs> question, I must say. Uh, I must agree, uh, but I love people from New Zealand, so I won't say anything, Annette, I promise. Plus, she has a French first name, so I, I know she means well. Uh, it is true, of course it is true. Everybody in France knows that, but watch out, you have to do it with the right foot, which is the left one. Astonishingly, yes, you're quite right, it's true. Some French people actually do think that treading in dog poo with your left foot is lucky. With your right foot, unlucky. There was actually an online shop that capitalized, oh, sorry for the pun, on this weird superstition and sold little pots of lucky dog poo from Paris. I have to say, though, they weren't particularly successful at it and they're no longer in business. So perhaps <laughs> it's not so lucky after all. Yeah, they must have put those little pots on the wrong side uh, of their shops, uh, even if it's an online shop. They should have been displayed uh, them on the left. Big mistake here. Uh, you know, you're not winning me over on this one, Olivier. I'm, I'm just not going with this as <laughs> possible. <laughs> and while, while we're talking about superstitions and Halloween is coming up, here's another one that my neighbour told me about, another superstition, that singing at Halloween will bring stormy weather. And I don't, I don't know if I believe that one either, to be honest, because I sing every day terribly. But when I was young, I used to be in a band. 
that feels like about 100 years ago. But anyway, Olivier, you're the music expert on France. Have you ever heard that? Um, not specifically for Halloween, nope. But uh, what we say uh, in France is that when someone is singing uh, very badly, you can expect rain or very bad weather <laughs> right after that. So was it raining a lot in your hometown when you were a kid, Janine? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I lived in London, so yes. There you go. <laughs> I don't think I can be blamed for all of that, though. <laughs> no, but still, there is not much to add there. The ugly truth uh, is out. <laughs> the Good Life Francis podcast. Everything you want to know about France and more. Moving on now, who's going to be on the next show, Janine? Well, in the next episode, we're going to be talking to Molly Wilkinson from Dallas, Texas. She now lives in Versailles in the shadow of the famous chateau just a few miles from Paris. She came to France to learn how to make cakes like the French, but now she's one of the best cake makers I've ever met. And she teaches classes online from Versailles, showing everyone how to make the most gorgeous gâteau. Her tale is inspiring. Thinking you have your whole life planned out one way and then something happens, and I know how that feels, and it all changes. This is a tale of cakes and delicious pastries. Mm. I mean, yeah, who can resist that? So don't miss out. Subscribe to the Good Life France podcast and never miss an episode. I can't wait. And in the meantime, don't forget that you can find us on all podcast platforms from Apple to Spotify or at thegoodlifefrance.com or at parischanson.fr. It's au revoir from me in France. And goodbye from me in Britain. Speak to you soon. The Good Life Francis podcast, available on all podcast platforms, on thegoodlifefrance.com, and on parischanson.fr.